Jesus. <laughs> I brought a real book. A real book, not a... Um, John 11, 1 through 45. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but, when I, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning. It's good to see you. Kind of. I assume you're all smiling behind your masks. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had this unexpected blessing. Tim Patterson, who was my very best friend throughout high school, uh, called me up and told me that he and his wife were going to be in town and that he wanted to get together. Now, Tim and I had done everything through those teen years. I mean, incredible adventures, um, even we hitchhiked across the country uh, the summer after our, we graduated. Uh, but when I went off to college, I, I lost track of Tim. Um, and I hadn't seen him in 50 years. And so uh, he came to the house, he and his wife, at, for brunch. And we had this, this, this most amazing time of sharing stories and catching up and uh, laughing and sincerely lamenting some of the stupid things that we did as teenagers. You know, but, but maybe you can relate to this, uh, that even though it had been so long since I'd seen him, it was like we had never missed a beat, where there was just a connection immediately. And that's kind of the nature of old friends. Uh, old friends are something that's precious, uh, and they are more precious because how rare they are. Um, friendship is a gift of God. It's one of those things that makes our life full and, and meaningful. A lot of the great thinkers in history said, you know, spoke about friendship. Aristotle said this, without friendships, no one would choose to live, even if they had all the other good things in life. C.S. Lewis wrote this, which is just amazing. He says, I have no duty to be anyone's friend, and no one in the world has a duty to be mine. No claims, no shadow of necessity. Friendship is unnecessary like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. 
And then the Beatles saying, I get by with a little help from my friends. <laughs> Jesus loved his friends. You know, we've been doing this series on, how, on loving your neighbor and looking in the Gospels at how Jesus loved his neighbor. And we've looked at how he loved enemies and outcasts and, and, and the least and, and uh, the scary and the crowds. But this morning, I want to look at how Jesus loved his friends. We know very little about Jesus' daily interactions with his companions and his friends. I mean, the Gospels, they give us the highlights. Uh, we, we see, you know, the, the miracles and the healings and, and the teachings and some little uh, uh, interactions that he had. But for the most part, what did he do with his companions throughout all of those days? Jesus' public ministry was somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 days. Um, so, th so think about that. I mean, they probably shared 2,000 meals together. They walked together for hundreds of miles. Some have calculated it up to, to 3,000 miles. Well, what, what went on in those interactions? Lane and I, who is my best friend, try to go walking together every day. And when we walk, we talk about a whole range of things. We talk about our walk with God, but we, we talk about our finances. We talk about our kids. We talk about our health. We talk about the price of chicken, you know. We talk about uh, the, the beauty of a sunset. Uh, we talk about, you know, cloud formations, which are incredible this time of year. Uh, and we talk about the shrubs and the flowers along our route. So, again, what, what did Jesus talk about with his companions and his friend? What did they do together in all of those times that uh, aren't recorded for us? Well, we don't know. It doesn't tell us, you know. So we can only speculate, which I will do because I have the mic and, <laughs> and I'm his friend, okay? I think that they talked about... a a whole lot more than just theology and morality and ethics, I think they talked about the beauty of the sunset and the cloud formations and the wildflowers along their path and the price of fish in the market. See, I, I really appreciate that recent uh, film series, The Chosen, now, I realize that they, they take this enormous amount of artistic license in telling the story, but I really appreciate the fact that they portray Jesus in his humanity as, as a person who, who laughed and who loved life and loved his friends. So, so we're going to look again at that story. I, uh, it's of Lazarus. It's probably very familiar to many of you, uh, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, this might be the first sermon you've ever heard about, that, uh, about Lazarus that we don't focus on resurrection or life. You know, I want to focus on Jesus relating to these three siblings in the town of Bethany. 
who seem to have this very close and special relationship with Jesus. So let me recap the story. Uh, Lazarus is terminally sick. Um, Lazarus uh, lives in a small village just outside, two miles outside of Jerusalem, and he has two sisters. We know those sisters from a prior story uh, where there's this conflict at a dinner party where Martha is diligently, anxiously uh, serving and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Well, um, at this time, Jesus is 25 miles away in another town. So the, so the sisters send a messenger to tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Um, when Jesus is, hears this, instead of going to Bethany, he delays for two days. After two days, uh, he tells his disciples, okay, let's go to Bethany. Well, the, the, the disciples who love Jesus very much and are very protective of him say, object to that. They say, no, that's way too dangerous. The, the religious authorities in Jerusalem are plotting to kill you. You shouldn't go. But it says that they, they couldn't talk Jesus out of it. He said that Jesus loved Lazarus and he loved Martha and Mary. So, um, so he, he tells them that, that Lazarus is death. I mean, uh, sickness is not unto death, but that it is going, an opportunity for God to be glorified in his son. Okay, so he, then he tells his disciples, well, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to go wake him up. And the disciples, as usual, don't quite get it and they think, uh, oh, good, if he's just asleep, then he's going to wake up and he'll be fine and we don't have to go. Okay, but then Jesus says, well, no, he, he is in fact dead and, um, and I am going to go and... Uh, he will rise again. Now, um, and that the, this would strengthen their faith. Okay, well, Thomas, one of the disciples, says to the other disciples, okay, well, let's, let's go with him and die with him. And so they, so they go. When they get to Bethany, uh, he's been in the tomb for four days. Uh, apparently, he had died the very day that they sent the message was a day trip to get to Jesus, two days delay, and then a, a day trip for him to get, get to Bethany. So, so he gets there, Martha comes out, greets him, there's this exchange, um, Jesus tells her that her, her son is, I mean her brother is going to rise again, and she assumes that he means that on the last day he'll rise up again, and Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he says, go get your um, go get your sister Mary. Mary's at home. She's still uh, grieving uh, in this bitter grieving uh, in her soul because of her brother. She goes out to see him. He sa she says the same thing to, to Jesus that Martha did. She says, if you had only been here, Jesus, our brother wouldn't have died. Okay? And so she is weeping bitterly, and it says of Jesus that he was sort of overwhelmed with this deep emotion, and Jesus wept. But no one expected what was going to happen next. So they get to the tomb. Jesus told them to remove this large stone that's in front of the cave, and Martha protests. 
She says, no, no, he, he's, this is four days. He stinks, okay? But so they, they remove the stone. Jesus calls forth Lazarus to come out. And lo and behold, Lazarus comes out with these burial cloths on. And he's alive. He's very much alive. So much so that later on in the next chapter, we see a few months later, Lazarus is at the dinner table with Jesus at another dinner party. Now, I think from this whole uh, exchange, we can see something about Jesus's insight into friendship. Jesus loved his friends. Jesus wasn't this cardboard flannel graph character going around, you know, quoting scripture and doing miracles. Jesus was a real live human being with all of the, the attributes and challenges and emotion that a human has. And as God in the flesh, Jesus was able to perfectly reflect or demonstrate how God intended humans to live, but without sin and fear and the insecurities and the, and the self-centeredness that's common to humans. He showed us how God intends us to live this really rich, full life. So when the <clears throat> sisters send this message to Jesus, it says that he, he, they said, the one whom you love is sick. You know, it's interesting that John, who's the writer of this gospel, refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. And our text says Jesus loved Lazarus, and he loved Mary, and he loved Martha. Now, we, we also know that Jesus loved everyone, right? That's what we've been studying for the past several weeks. Jesus loved everyone, but it seems as though Jesus had a special relationship with a few close friends. You know, even though these three siblings weren't with Jesus through this whole 1,200 days or whatever like the others, it seems as though that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he preferred to stay outside of town in Bethany with these friends. The last week prior to Jesus' crucifixion, that Holy Week, it seems that Jesus again was staying uh, in Bethany with these friends. And he would make the two-mile uh, commute, walking commute, in and out of the city. I, I think that, that was, he was comfortable with them, these friends of his. And this was the Mary who, and, and at this time, uh, poured that expensive perfume on his feet and wiped it with her hair. See, it seems as though Jesus had this special relationship with three of the disciples, three of the twelve, Peter, James, and John. And he included them in the time, in his most vulnerable moments. And then John, again the writer, the one who Jesus loved, sat next to Jesus and laid his head on his chest at the, at the Last Supper. And it was John who Jesus from the cross told him to care for his mother. 
See, so it's like concentric circles, like all of us have, from those the closest to us on out to the more casual. So why is that important? Well, that's important because Jesus called us friends. See? John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. That is so incredible. We are not merely servants, employees, even students or followers, but we are friends, friends of Jesus. And the distinction that Jesus makes here in between those kinds of relationships is the degree of disclosure, the degree of honesty, the degree of transparency in the relationship. Everything that he had learned from his father, he shared with them. He didn't hold anything back, even his own life. And then he goes on to say, this is my command, that you love one another. So we, let's look at a, a few of the characteristics of friendship here. First of all, friendship involves commitment or loyalty. Jesus was there for his friends even in the end, giving his life for his friends. When the sisters sent word to Jesus, that message to Jesus, there wasn't any request. They didn't request him to come. There's no demand that he come. I think that they just assumed that when Jesus heard that the one that he loved was sick, that he would come to their, his aid. And Jesus did come, knowing full well how dangerous it was to come to that area. Jesus would risk his own life for his friend. And it's interesting too, his disciples who were afraid to go, did go willing to risk their lives to be there for Jesus. See, most friendships take a while to develop. Some are really quick, come quickly, some are much slower. But they all take that kind of commitment, that kind of intentionality for them to endure, to be a vital friendship. Because inevitably, inevitably, there's going to come bumps in the road. Inevitably, there's going to be misunderstandings, offenses, uh, disappointments that come in the relationship. But a friend doesn't give up on a friend. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. Think of all the bumps in the road that these friends of Jesus experienced with him. I mean, when, when one time Peter, thinking that he was being this loyal, protective uh, friend, Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Or later, he, he, he denies that he even knows Jesus. Or John, John and his brother, again, thinking that they are being loyal to Jesus, want to call down fire on a Samaritan village. 
and Jesus rebukes them. Or Martha, she's diligently serving dinner to Jesus and his friends, and Jesus calls her out on her worrying about inconsequential things. Well, any of those things could have been a deal breaker, right? A friendship breaker? You know, I mean, they're just trying. And he spoke these words to them. See, friendship is something that has to be protected and cherished. It's not disposable. And it's that kind of tenacious loyalty to friends that make it possible for some other in vital characteristics of friendship, which is transparency and vulnerability. See, like Jesus with his friends, we don't hold back from our friends. We don't hold back our true selves. We don't hold back our struggles, our pain, our failures, or our sin. Nor do we hold back our dreams and our hopes. And that's possible because friends don't give up on friends. See, there's, in a friendship, there's no fear of rejection. See, with a friend, I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put on airs. I don't, I don't have to try to impress. There is no fear that if, if they really know who I am and what's going on inside, they won't love me. They won't be my friend. See, I can be vulnerable, knowing that that's really a strength and not a fear. And a friend is someone that I can confess my sin to, knowing that they will still love me and will stand with me. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, when we don't do this, when we don't confess our sins to one another, we're driven into the shadows, into shame. There's this inside, this internal disconnect with us, and we become like Christian schizophrenics. We lie to ourselves, and we get good at lying to others. And that creates a rottenness inside of us. But see, but with confession, that rottenness is removed. And we're healed. And we're free. But see, that kind of vulnerable sharing can only happen if it is kept in the strictest of confidence with friends. Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. There is nothing more toxic in a, in a friendship than loose lips, especially, in my opinion, especially if it's done under the religious guise of prayer concern. Let's, can we pray for Billy because toxic? Friendship requires respect. Martha believed in Jesus. She confessed that he was the Messiah, 
the Son of God, the one that was sent. Friends believe in friends. Not in the way that Martha believed in Jesus, but in the way where we, if you will, see Jesus in our friends. We can see our friends the way that Jesus sees them. We can see their gifts and their talents. Even if those are latent or undeveloped, we can see the beauty of their uniqueness, and we can call that out, even when they can't see it themselves. I love Lauren Daigle's song, You Say. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say that I'm held when I'm falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I am yours, and I believe. What you say of me, I believe. Isn't that an incredible, beautiful picture of our relationship with our friend Jesus? He's, he's, I believe what he says of me. But it also speaks of the power of friendship. See, it's such a creative gift. We have the power to speak and bring forth life in our friends and destiny to encourage. Now, that, that encouragement takes on lots of different forms. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I had a really good friend. David, who's gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, we had gone through so many things together for many years. Some really beautiful things, some really painful things. Uh, but his personality and his temperament was like the polar opposite of me. Uh, he was a Jew. Uh, he was... Um, a businessman and a prophet. He was incredibly um, intelligent. Uh, he was aggressive. Uh, growing up in an affluent family in Manhattan, um, and a really fast talker. And one of my one of my other friends said, "You know, sometimes when I'm talking with to David, I feel like he's already made it to the pass, and he's waiting to ambush me." <laughs> but I loved, but, and then, then I was just me. But I loved David. He was a really loyal friend. Years ago, I was going through a really difficult season in my life. I, had, I was on a six-year hi hiatus from, from pastoring, and even though things were going very well in my life, I was really depressed for the first time in my life. I experienced depression. Now, as a pastor, I'd always tried to be empathetic with people who were experiencing depression, but I had never experienced it myself. And so I was in a real slump. I'd been in a slump for a couple of years. So much so that my, that my wife, Lane, wondered what had, where the man that she had married had gone. You know that one? And so... David came to visit. Good, good friend. And he listened to me, listened to me whine about my life and things. And, and then 
he said to me, Steve, you need to repent. He said, you have given place to gross unbelief in your life concerning what God says about you and your calling. And you need to repent. That is not at all what I expected my friend to say. I wanted words of comfort. I wanted him to commiserate with me. But that, in fact, was not what I needed at that time. I needed the faithful wounding of a friend. Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. See, the words that I heard from my friend, they were true. And I probably could only have heard those from a trusted friend that I knew who loved me and believed the best about me. And I did repent, and that set me on a new course, a new positive trajectory in my life. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think repentance is a cure for depression, okay? I, but for me, at that time, is that's what I needed to hear and to do. Friendship takes forbearance, because we're all a work in progress. Jesus told his disciples, he says, I'm glad that I delayed because you, so that you might believe. Well, of course they believed. I mean, they had been with him for two, two and a half years by that point. They were willing to go to Jerusalem and die with him. But see, belief is progressive. Martha and Mary, they believed in Jesus. They believed that if he had been there, he would have healed their, his, their brother. But they didn't believe that it was a good thing to open up a stinky grave after four, year, four days. See? See, our friends, like us, are, are, it's, we're works in progress. There are going to be disappointments. Friends are going to fail us when we need them. Friends are going to be concerned with their own, own stuff and overlook ours and fall asleep on the job like Jesus' friends did in the garden. We're those friends. We desperately need other friends to not give up on us. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the English Bible. Our text says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, many have commented on that whole scenario and why, what was going on with Jesus and why did he weep? You know, that deep disturbance in his soul could be understood as anger. And some, many commentators have have said, well, Jesus, it was anger that welled up inside him uh, for their unbelief. Or others have said, well, it was anger towards death itself. We know he wasn't sad for Lazarus because he knew that Lazarus would live again. 
Well, I, I, I'm no Bible scholar, but I, I do have an opinion. I mean, have you ever been with someone, someone that you really loved, and they were in pain and, and bitter crying, and it just so moved you somewhere deep in your gut, and it just brought you to tears? It was almost like automatic. It just comes over you, even though the source of their pain is not yours. That's what I think. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote later, later on in 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. That word, sympathetic, here literally means to fellow feel or fellow feeling. We might say it's, it's like standing in the shoes of another, sitting with them in their pain, feeling their pain. You know, sometimes the best thing that a friend can do for a friend is sit with them in their pain, to listen to feel deeply with them. Now, that's not what I needed from my friend David. But oftentimes, that's the best thing that we can do. We need friends. We live in a time of increased isolation and loneliness. Even before COVID came on the scene, there was a pandemic of loneliness in our culture. Americans today have fewer friends than Americans in any prior generation. Today, many say that their spouse is the only one that they can really confide in. And whereas Lane is my best friend, she cannot meet the needs that I have for close friendship completely. And to put that kind of expectation on the relationship is to put an undue strain on a marriage. I mean, what if the spouse is sick? What if you're having trouble in your marriage? Who can you talk to? Who do you turn to? What if you're single? You know, I, I have observed over the years that many men often have no real friends. I mean, there's guys that they can watch the game with, barbecue, have a beer, go fishing with, maybe even study the Bible with, or talk politics when we used to be able to talk politics. <laughs> but no one who could, they, they could really share the deep things that are going on in their life. No one in whom they have built a trusted relationship with who could speak into their lives or even to speak loving correction when they needed it. No one where they felt comfortable enough to confess their sins. 
But you see, without those kinds of friendships, we have no hope, really, of living the kind of full life that God intends us to live. And really, we have no hope of growing in Jesus and in our relationship with him. Friendship is a two-way street. It's a give and take. If I want friends, I have to be willing to be a friend. And that involves sacrifice on our part. It's costly, but more than worth it. It takes our time. It takes, sometimes it takes an emotional toll on us. It takes courage to be vulnerable and open to another. And it takes courage to speak uncomfortable words to a friend. You know, over the years as a pastor, I've had many people tell me, said, well, I came to church, but I, I didn't make any friends at church. Nobody reached out to be my friend. That's sad. I said, well, the question is, well, who were you a friend to? Who did you reach out to? Who did you invite over? Who did you listen to? See, the question is not how can I get a friend, but how can I be a friend to others? Well, you might be thinking, I, I want those kinds of friendships, but I am just overwhelmed with life. I am overwhelmed with my work and raising my kids and, and do, keeping up on my chores, and I don't even have time for my spouse like I want. How in the world can I fit a friend, keeping a friend into my life, into my schedule? Well, if you thought I had an answer to that, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know your circumstances. I just know that it's not optional. And we live out our priorities in life. It's not an option. And for the record, because you have Facebook friends does not necessarily mean that you actually have any friends. Let me close with a, a suggestion, okay? Joining a life group is a really good way to make a friend. Not that everybody in church is going to be your friend, or not that anybody, everybody in your life group is going to be your friend, or that can we guarantee that you will make a friend. But it is somewhere to start. If you're hearing me say this this morning and you're going, oh, I don't know if I have friends like that. I don't know if I'm a friend to somebody else like that. Well, this is a good place to start. This is the, 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 the structure and the schedule and the form of life group allows for meaningful connection with other people where there's the possibility of that growing into a real friendship. So I encourage you 
life at its fullest is a life of friendship. Jesus is a friend. That's an incredible thing. And we experience it, and it just amazes us every day that I would be the friend of God. But we need Jesus to be a friend to us through our relationships with other people. And so with that, I'm going to have Marshall come up, and we are going to see what God might do.